Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that your word would be for us seed to those who sow and bread to those who eat. In your name we pray. Amen. This is a a well-known story to many many of us, the feeding of the 5,000. It's attested in all the Gospels. And um, as you can imagine, this is not just simply Jesus does an amazing thing because he's got great power, kind of like a magic trick. Um, That's what King Herod wanted. Some of you may know that story where he kind of got a hold of Jesus and asked him to do some magic. Um, That's not what Jesus is into, obviously. There's a vast difference between a magic trick and a miracle, um, particularly with respect to what's going on in Scripture, where the key focus, the key intent of everything that Jesus does is to reveal how God... Uh, how God exists before his people. God wants to be known. He wants to be known deeply and intensely, and that's what the enterprise of Jesus is all about, because his people do not know him. That's one way of kind of summarizing the problem of human existence. The problem of human history is that people don't know God. That goes all the way back to the very beginning, of course, but the intent of Jesus isn't simply to do an amazing thing in our reading from the gospel this morning, but to do a certain kind of amazing thing that reveals the kind of qualities that he has. From day one, there was a problem, uh, virtually day one. I'm kind of using uh, broad strokes here. There was a problem of suspicion. I don't know exactly where it came from, except that we know the enemy, kind of, uh, the, the enemy kind of introduces it through the serpent. Those of you who know the story from Genesis chapter 3, you'll know that the serpent sows suspicion in the heart of Adam and Eve on God's nature. The serpent says to Adam and Eve that God has these kind of ulterior motives and that he can't be trusted. And somehow that deep suspicion is rooted in human beings from that time until now. And the Old Testament is the story of how God goes to great lengths in order to retrieve his lost people and show them that there's nothing to suspect And God uses means in the Old Testament that are very familiar to us who read Scripture, but very familiar to Jesus, of course, and to the Jewish people of his time. And so when Jesus takes the radical step forward in the incarnation, he doesn't change the story. He doesn't show us a different God. Rather, he pulls on the the history of God's way with his people, and he magnifies that message. I kind of think of reading the Bible like listening to a symphony that builds over time. There are these notes that are struck early on. And as you read the story forward, those notes tend to kind of sound a little more boldly. And then there are other notes that are introduced. And the weaving of these notes together is never chaotic. It's never cacophonous. It becomes beautiful. And that's what happens over time, that God slowly and carefully begins to drop into the ears of the Jewish people the notes of what he's like, 
And some of these things may be familiar to you. You know that God teaches. God teaches. He gives the Torah. That would be very familiar to the Jewish people, that God is a teaching God. He shares something. He reveals something through words. God feeds his people. God feeds his people with miraculous bread. That's what happened to the Jewish people when they had left Egypt and were now uh, traveling around in this barren desert and God fed them by his own hand. God leads his people. He brings them prophets and priests and kings. And that leadership is installed and is intended to give them godly and wise counsel. It doesn't work so well that way. And therefore, we know that God rescues. God rescues his people. He sends them shepherds. And in fact, he says, I am the greatest shepherds, uh, shepherd of them all to retrieve my lost sheep. There's this and more, of course, in the story of the Old Testament. But these are notes that sound. And they become deeply instilled in the worship life, the liturgical life of the Jewish people. So they're reminded over and over again of the music. They hear it frequently and, and, and they hear it in, in dynamic and, and imaginative, dramatic ways. So by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, you can see he has a lot to pull from. He has a lot to work with, to coach and to teach and to illuminate these wayward people that we are. Jesus has great intention, and that intention is to show us primarily that God loves us and that he is faithful to us. God loves us and he's faithful to us. That's what Jesus is here to show us, and he's forging a people that know this in their core, and that's why he pursues you and he pursues me to show us this nature of God. And that's what he's doing in your life right now. That's what he's doing in my life. If you wonder what God's doing in this life, it's really the hard work of showing you that he loves you and is faithful to you. So our short story today is aligned with this history and with, uh, and with his people, and we'll see these themes unfold. So if you look in chapter 6 uh, of the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that this story has a couple parts to it. Part 1 is Jesus and the disciples. The disciples, incidentally, in, uh, in our passage this morning, are called apostles. I think for the first time in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, a disciple is a follower. An apostle is an emissary. That's kind of a short way of looking at it. Here we see that the, the disciples are apostles because they had been sent out on mission. And you can see that earlier in chapter 6, that they had been sent out by Jesus to go and to teach and to heal. That's their mission. And they did that. And now they're coming home. And you can see how Jesus is forming these new leaders of Israel called apostles, these emissaries. And, um, and he's very happy to kind of have them back from their mission. Now, I'll just uh, make note of the fact that the kind of teaching that the disciples are doing is uh, a specific kind of teaching. This is not strictly informational or describing general principles and things of that nature. This is prophetic, change-oriented teaching. Teaching may have kind of a flat sound in our ears. Um, this is not uh, just simply didactic. It's meant to root out sin and change hearts. That's a, 
a determined kind of preaching teaching with unction to deliver, to uproot, to overturn, to prepare the soil. It's meant to liberate. This is intensive kind of preaching and teaching. It's aimed, I would say, at the heart. The heart as a metaphor for the whole self, but especially that place where love strikes home. It's a place where our deepest fears or shame or sin lie. And it's the place where change happens, but not without help. This isn't the place of effort. It's not the place of will. It's the place where we hold people dear, where we experience the love of others holding us dear or hurting us for that matter. This is the special territory of the Holy Spirit. Though not to the neglect of our bodies, the apostles were sent out to proclaim that people should repent, and he also, they also healed people. This is the sort of teaching that describes what the apostles were doing in imitation of Jesus. And so now they return, and Jesus receives the apostles. I love this, and I want us to slow down here because Jesus is just so compassionate. Imagine how glad they were to see each other. This is not Charlton Heston, you know, welcome, let us retire to a desolate place. You know, not that kind of magnificent character. This is more like coming home from college or a trip, you know, and, and your mom and your dad are glad to see you and you're glad to see them and tell you everything and you're home and it's familiar territory. You wanted to tell all the details and they wanted to hear it and you wanted to enjoy being together. That's surely what Jesus was doing here and, and that's what he said. Why don't you sit down at the table? I've got supper ready for you. Tell me all about it. This must have been a joyous homecoming for them. Jesus is glad to be with you. Jesus is glad to receive you. He's glad to hear about it. You know, it's not easy to be out there on mission. I wonder how many of us even think that we are on mission, but, you know, it's just hard enough to get up and do life. That's mission. And God wants to just build into that even more, and he's glad to be with you and hear the details of what it's like out there, so to speak. But he's doing it in the home, his home with you around the table. God is hospitable. So I hope you can begin to see the themes that support our worship here on Sunday morning where this kind of teaching and table come together to experience in a dynamic and powerful way together the grace of God. Well, um, part two here is Jesus and the crowds. So we have to leave Jesus and the disciples quickly because that hospitality is about to be stretched. I guess that's the price of fame. Um, it may be even the case that this kind of focus on the male gender, you know, because all the gospels say there's 5,000 males. Uh, there is a theory which, which is kind of interesting that these folks may have had some sort of political uh, animation behind them. Uh, maybe this was time to take over. John's gospel actually alludes to this because it says that after this event, the people want to make Jesus king. So there may be a slight militaristic kind of flair going on here. Mark doesn't kind of bring that out explicitly. I don't think it's his main point. But you can see that the people here around the surrounding areas are energized by something. It's probably not very clear. It's probably a little confused, which is why Jesus acts like he did. We'll hear about that in a second. Um, there's no sign in this text that Jesus is distressed 
by the size or motivation of the crowd. You're just really calm about that. What moves him is compassion. That's what moves him. And this runs very, very deep. This uh, word here that's used compassion uh, in the Greek is used uh, only very few times to describe Jesus. And it's in these poignant moments where the metaphors that connect Jesus into the Old Testament story with God run very deep. It's the metaphor of sheep and shepherd. And this wasn't just off the cuff. Um, This metaphor really captures so well the predicament of the people and the character of God. There's nothing that would move the heart of a shepherd more than a flock without leadership, unprotected, confused, vulnerable, exposed. Mark surely intends his readers to resonate with the depth of this metaphor. And this metaphor is meant for you and me, I think. It doesn't say that Jesus said that out loud. I don't know how Mark knew that Jesus thought this, but he did. And it's for the benefit of those who are reading this account to know what was motivating Jesus and to be able to dwell on the richness and power of this metaphor and the, uh, the memory that this evokes in God's history with Israel. There are many meta- uh, scriptures to draw upon this morning that would depict the love that God has as a shepherd. I'll just choose one from Isaiah 40. Isaiah, the great prophet from the 8th century, he says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Behold, the Lord God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is how God wants to be known. And so here we see one of the first signs in our account this morning that begins to align Jesus with God the Father. To draw him into the activity of God as though he were God. Oriented to the Jewish people as God the Father himself is oriented in a position to do something about it. Mark is making the connection between Jesus and God the Father in such a way that it strengthens what we now know to be true, that Jesus is God. Jesus does what God does. He teaches the people. And though his teaching is not described in this text, it is surely the case that it arises out of that great burden of compassion to lead his lost sheep back to their shepherd. Jesus teaches them for a long time and surely about this the sort of prophetic teaching aimed at the heart with the purpose of restoring the broken relationship that had been at the center of human history all along the way. And yet, again, not to the exclusion of the whole person, we return to that subject of food. This gets us to our third act, Jesus and the disciples again. Now his disciples, they initiate this act, and they come to Jesus with the need. It was good of them to do so. They said, hey, we're out, we're, we're kind of far away from the, the nearest McDonald's. Um, maybe we should send these people away and get some food. But Jesus isn't ready to end their training as emissaries quite yet. He says to them, you do something about it. Sometimes I hate it when he says that. I just wish he had made the problem go away. 
And so I'm deeply sympathetic with the, uh, with the disciples here. He says, you give them something to eat. Well, the disciples just really aren't very helpful at this point, and they say something sort of dumb. This is the sort of thing I'd say. Uh, they say, well, something about there's, there's too much money involved. Uh, Jesus really just kind of ignores this com- comment. <laughs> and he rescues the disciples by giving them a little nudge, a little project that they could carry out. And he says, tell you what, why don't you go and do a little research? How much bread do you have out there? This time they ditch the snarky comment and they simply state the facts, much safer ground. Well, we have five loaves and two fish. No commentary, just obedience. And that's helpful. That's enough. It turned out to be a lot cheaper too. So Jesus had a very simple solution all along. It just was one that nobody could have imagined. I find that very often the case in our lives. Our lives are complex to ourselves. They are. But they're not complex to Jesus, not in the way that he doesn't know what to do. And if we listen for a while, always it's the case that Jesus' idea is the best one. It's the clearest one. It's the most straightforward. But it's not always the easiest. Now we get into the last act here, and that's Jesus and the crowds and the disciples. And here we see Jesus as his most magnificent, his most amazing. Mark wants to, he wants to raise this up as the high point of the story and continue unfolding the revelation that Jesus is more than just a man. The people sit down in rows and ranks and Jesus stands among them. It says they're on green grass. Again, kind of an allusion to the shepherding metaphor. Jesus stands among them and his hands and eyes are heavenward and in fellowship with God and with his blessing. And on behalf of his people, he breaks the bread. And here we see the oneness of Jesus and the Father. The same essence, the same purpose, the same mission, the same power. Here God the Father blesses the ministry of God the Son through multiplying the loaves just as he did so long ago when Israel, like sheep without a shepherd, wandered the deserts of Sinai and were fed. That wouldn't be the last time. But there too they ate and were satisfied. And here in the Galilee, they ate and they were satisfied. And I have to guess that Jesus was satisfied too. Feeding is the most basic foundation of a secure relationship. It's primal. Feeding is what bonds the baby and the mother in the earliest moments of a person's life. We bond with whom we eat. If the purpose of Jesus' teaching is to work in the soil of our hearts, it's so that our hearts are prepared to receive the bread of life so that we can eat and be satisfied and enjoy the bond of love with the one who feeds us. That's how Jesus shows us himself as the bread of life. Interestingly, the story ends abruptly and actually we'll hear more about it 
next week. The disciples are overwhelmed by all of this, it turns out. And it begs the question for us, how can we respond to such an amazing, miraculous, and meaningful story? I just want to give us a few, uh, um, a few uh, tips, a few recommendations on how we can engage Jesus in the way that he wants to be engaged. One, let's receive this kind of teaching in this way. It's personal and penetrating and revealing. Now, uh, one thing I've learned about uh, Redeemer Annapolis, there's a lot of thinkers in our midst. Um, I'm one of them. I like to think. I'm not saying I think good. I don't mean to pat myself on the back there. (laughs) My thinking may be terrible. But I like it. Um, I like it well enough to know that it can be kind of a safe spot for me. I can kind of hang out thinking and avoid doing. I can think and not act. Or I can think and not commit. Thinking always gives me an out of a complex situation. Maybe you can relate to that. This kind of teaching that Jesus does is not that kind of teaching. Here's how the author to... Uh, the uh, Hebrew says it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's welcome that kind of teaching. It can be disconcerting, but remember what the enemy wants to do is to sow suspicion in your heart. But God can be trusted. Can you not see that in the way that Jesus attends to his disciples and to these crowds? How much hospitality and gentleness and wisdom and compassion he brings to these people? He'll receive you and he does receive you in exactly the same way. We can trust Jesus in this kind of teaching. It's the teaching that gets into the heart. It requires that we we engage our whole person. We must listen. Listen can be different than thinking. We must listen quietly in our hearts. We must ponder. That's actually what's behind the Hebrew word meditate. The Hebrew word meditate has the idea of mumbling or repeating with your lips. It's It's saying things over and over and over again until you start to ingest the thing that you're meditating upon. You have to slow down to do it. That's the point. It's the subtle difference between intellectual assent and trust. They're related. Intellectual assent is important, but they're just different. Trust is a whole person integration of thought and action. This is what Jesus' teaching does. Take time to listen. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Second, experience the love of God. Now, it's hard to recommend that, because how do you do that? Well, teaching culminates in encountering God. We feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Feeding means achieving satisfaction. We experience hospitality, blessing, grace, fullness, and relational joy by eating to satisfaction. This word thanksgiving is very important because it's kind of a consummating inner experience. If you find yourself 
grateful for something, really meditate on that, what you're grateful for. It can be very simple. Uh, the hug of your child or of your spouse. Uh, you can meditate on that and thank God for that and feel what it feels like in your body to do that and express gratitude from God for it and listen to how he feels about that. He may say, I'm so glad for you that you have that gift. That's what I'm like. It's what I'm doing. This is a conversation that we have with Jesus personally about our own lives. And it brings satisfaction. We need to cultivate this as an experience in order to enjoy the bond of love that God has for us. We'll keep reading about that as we move through the letter to Ephesians, which is in our, uh, which is in our um, liturgical cycle. Paul says he wants us to know the love of God, which passes knowledge. Thirdly, we want to grow in maturity as disciple and emissary. This is the movement of the kingdom, and it's communal. We have to spend time with other people. It gathers people together to share in the blessing of God and to share the blessing of God with each other. The kingdom of heaven is one of giving and receiving that reveals God's presence. I hope you can see that we're doing that here this morning again. The Anglican liturgical service is really based on this kind of revelation in scripture. It's the revelation of receiving God's grace through his word and feeding on his grace through the giving of himself in communion with each other where we imitate that. These are the marks of the new world breaking into the old one. It's the, it's the domain of suspicion giving way to the domain of trust. God is trustworthy. God is awesome. Jesus is wonderful. The Holy Spirit is gracious. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit aligned for your sake, for your salvation. And together we'll be the people of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.